Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this episode, we sit down with Kevin Owoki from Gitcoin to talk about open source funding through bounties, grants, and building business models around open source software. Before we start, we want to say thank you to this week's sponsor, Apograph. Apograph is a project that has built an extensive collection of open access research papers on cryptography, distributed computer systems, and blockchain. Their OA aggregation tool is designed specifically for cryptographers and blockchain developers. Thanks to an integration with the ORCID registry, contributors can develop and establish a professional profile based on their entire body of work, all on a single platform. So if you're a researcher who'd be interested in such a system, or if you're a learner who'd like to subscribe to get updates about a specific researcher's work, you may want to check out this system. For a look at what they're doing, check out apograph.io or have a look in our show notes. We're going to share a link to their curated list of cryptocurrency course material. So thank you again, Apograph. And now here's our interview with Kevin. So today we want to talk about um, funding, actually, and all sorts of different ways of funding open source technology, open source, open source software development. And um, I think we have a great guest to talk about that with. Hi, Kevin. Hi, thanks for having me on. We're also here with Frederick. Hello. So like Anna said, we're talking about funding I'm curious, Kevin, why did you get involved in this space of like trying to get projects funding? Mm -hmm. uh, what was it about this that made you think like, this is what I want to work on and dig into? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I love starting with why. Uh, so so uh, my name is Kevin Iwaki. I'm an entrepreneur and software developer from Colorado, USA. And I have been doing entrepreneurship and tech stuff roughly for about 12 years. Uh, I got my start in startups. Uh, I, I left corporate America and moved across the country, uh, with, broke my lease within the span of 10 days to get into startups. I was a CTO uh, uh, at a Techstars startup company, which is an accelerator out here. I was 22 and really had no business being a CTO. Uh, but sort of dove head in into the world of startups then, and I've I've just loved it and never never left. But in the last thirteen years since I've been doing tech startups, everything that I've been built has been built on top of open source software. So if you go on GitHub, you're going to see that there's a ton of different repositories that allow you to use an open source web server or an open source database server, or uh, I use Django for a lot of my projects. And all of this code's available for free, which I just think is really incredible. And uh, there's been some studies. In 2008, there was a study that showed that open source software creates billions of dollars a year in economic value. I think the number was $400 billion. That's 10 years ago. This is before blockchain open source money existed. And it's just pretty incredible that open source is out there and for technologists like us to draw on uh, to get our projects off on a running start instead of having to build a web server whenever we want to build a web company. And I think that a lot of the younger generation and, you know, I work with a lot of people who are in their 20s and, and they sort of take this for granted. I was around in the 90s when Microsoft was dominant and you had to pay 
a licensing fee for a web server. And uh, it, did, it didn't have to be this way. And I think we're really lucky to have open source software. And so I think that open source provides a lot of value for the world, but I don't think that people who contribute to open source are fairly compensated for the value that they're creating in the world. So there's a lot of value creation and value capture. And Gitcoin was started on the, we've made this wild bet on blockchain being the tool that we can use to solve this problem. So if we have programmable money and we value open source software, then it, we can maybe program our values into our money and we can we can compensate people who are working on open source software. And that's sort of what Gitcoin is. It's a double-sided market that allows you to it connects funders uh, to coders, and uh, we have a mechanism that that connects them in different ways to create productive economic output between those two parties. And we think that blockchain is a game changer for open source sustainability because, for the first time in the world, all the money in all the money that's going to the financial system that would have used that used to go to some back office on Wall Street is now going to open source software. And I just think that's an incredible opportunity to to grow and sustain open source. And that's why our mission is to grow and sustain open source. Before we jump into Gitcoin specifically, I kind of want to talk about just what exists now. Like what is out there? What was there before mm -hmm. in terms of funding for open source software development? I think the drawing from the prior art that's that's existed in the sustained open source community is is a really valuable thing. And I'm a member of uh, of the sustained OSS community, which is a community that that meets every year to talk about open source sustainability initiatives. And I'm a big fan of Nadia Eggball's work in in funding open source software. So she wrote this seminal paper called Roads and Bridges, the unseen labor behind our digital infrastructure. And it's this this paper that sort of compares compares open source software to roads and bridges, the physical infrastructure that we rely upon. And the the seminal work that people reference is called Lemonade Stand. If you Google Lemonade Stand, you will see a, a handy guide to financial support for open source software. So uh, just browsing that their table of contents right now, they've got a lot of different opportunities for open source maintainers to monetize their work. Uh, donation buttons, bounties, crowdfunding, selling books and merchandise, selling advertising on top of your work. Uh, but the big the big ones are sort of consulting and just convincing your employer that they should allow you to work 20% of your time on open source software. So um, the problem with those two options is that you don't spend a ton of your time on open source software. At max, you're spending 20% of your time on open source and 80% on whatever profit-driven venture that you're, that you're working on because of the funding. They also have like no exponential reward possibility. So yeah. typically when you create software in a company, you have the potential to earn disproportionate to the effort that you put into it. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, perfect example is like how many companies have profited off of OpenSSL. Right. Uh, but, you know, the, the developers of it get no money. And so if you're consulting to make, you know, a living, then you can't actually make that the, the real upside of, of writing that piece of software. Yeah. I mean, I guess if people are, let's go back to just like, if you're a software developer in a company, you're also, you're creating code that's then used by a larger entity. You're compensated for that. Sometimes you're also compensated with equity, mm -hmm. which could potentially down the line be worth more if the thing is successful. Mm -hmm. When you go into open source, yeah, like, is there any further 
I mean, I guess donations is cool, but like, is is it not more like when a when a piece of like when something is released right then, there's a lot of excitement about it. But once it becomes standard, mm. do people continue to contribute to those? Yeah, there's certainly a problem when the novelty wears off and people just sort of start to expect your work. And I think that when you look at the open source maintainer life cycle, uh, that's actually a really, really great segue into into the problem with the open source maintainer life cycle, which is you release something new, you put it on Hacker News or on Reddit, or maybe it goes viral on Twitter, and people are saying, oh, this is awesome. I'm so glad you did this. I had this idea, but I didn't follow up on it. This is amazing. Thank you for doing this. Here's a $25 donation or something like that. But then as people start to rely on your software, the conversation becomes, hey, I have this bug and I can't figure out what to do. Can you take a look at it? And then the extreme example is that when more people start to rely on it, they start to become expectant of of your time and attention. And remember, this is a maintainer that's doing it for for fun and isn't getting a lot of rewards financially, just just sort of maybe reputational and network rewards out of out of doing it. And so when when your users start to from from all directions start to get really expectant of the value that you're providing, it can lead to a lot of burnout for maintainers. And I think that that's that's the part where things you can make a rational economic argument where things are getting really self defeating. If the people who are maintaining this open source infrastructure, maintaining our digital bro- roads and bridges, are getting burnt out and quitting, then that causes a lot of problems in you know, inefficient value creation for the world. And in some some cases, you can even see examples of maintainers that have given away access to their repos because they don't want to do it anymore to malicious actors. I think there was a famous NPM hack maybe like two months ago where a maintainer was just kind of over it with their project. And so someone came along and was like, hey, I'd like to maintain this. And it turned out that was a social engineering attack to inject malware into their NPM repo. Wow. And they, I forget how much Bitcoin they stole by doing that, but it was just a really ingenious attack vector that you you hadn't heard of. But it's because the maintainer got burnt out. I've also seen like really extreme cases of this where um, like in the Rails community, for instance, th- there's this sense of entitlement that, comes with you know there's there's someone that has built a, a large company on this piece of software and mm-hmm. now has certain expectations of it they, they come to the core team and say you know you, you you fucked up my business you have this bug you need to fix this asap yeah but it's like well you built your whole company on top of open source code that no one is actually responsible for and now you're coming with demands mm-hmm. you know, the, it, the equation doesn't really work out mm-hmm. Do you think though is there are there companies that actually do contribute back like that they maintain could could the companies that are using this become the maintainers So so yes the short answer is yes there's there is a business model where you sort of maintain become the maintainer of the software and then you channel the bug and feature requests into a sales pipeline where you sell a services agreement on on top of the the work that you're doing and you know that that creates a lot of capture of of the development roadmap of the project based off of customers customer concerns which i think in most cases is, is a good thing probably in a in a minority of cases isn't a good thing but that's one of the models for open source that's that's working the problem is that you need quite a lot of scale in order to do it you need to have the heft of the linux foundation or the apache foundation the administrative weight of them in order to make it work i think Something that I've always been curious about just in general in this is also like when companies become the maintainers, do they close source part of this? Like, is that is that actually part of the open source work? Mm-hmm. 
some of them, like, I guess you mentioned a couple where they, they remain committed to open source, right. but are people worried about, like, just the companies taking it over? Yeah, I, I think that, so there's this model called open core, which my understanding is that you release sort of 70% or 80% of the functionality open source, and then you have these modules that are closed sourced on top of it that you can use to 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 create an upsell. And it's kind of like the freemium model. And I think that mm. that's working in a lot of cases in the legacy uh, open source. But again, you have to have the administrative, you have to achieve a scale where you have the administrative, you can maintain a sales team and a pipeline and all that kind of stuff to make it work for the mom and pop developer. It's It's not really much of an option. Like part of what you're talking about is also a licensing issue, not so much mm-hmm. as a, an open source or funding yeah. issue. I mean, the, the reason people go with GPL is to prevent exactly that of a company, larger company than you gaining interest in it, yeah. taking it and making it closed source and therefore the like profiting off it, off of it separately from yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. GPL can prevent that to a certain, to a certain extent. And when people, Apache too, there like there have been cases of large companies like Google usurping a project and sort of going, you know, this is ours now. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna do better job at maintaining it or developing it than yeah. the original author, and so the original authors get no credit. Yeah. Um this is universally considered a dick move. <laughs> yeah, that actually is a good segue into uh, I wanted to talk briefly about cloud providers because it's one of the most controversial areas of open source sustainability right now. So imagine you build some amazing database and you open source it to the world and you're starting to build a business model around that open core consulting service. Uh if 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 AWS or DigitalOcean or any of these other companies pick it up as something that they're going to offer for free in an EC2 instance or as a managed service, then they're going to be the the ones who are using the most of of that software and they're not going to pay and give back. So there's a lot of controversy about what cloud providers are doing right now with respect to open source and how much they leverage it for their business models, but don't give back. Now I think what would be really great to do is talk about how blockchain and sort of this idea of open source in blockchain opened up mm. a whole I don't, almost like a category yeah. of new ways of funding. Yeah. Um, what, what were the original ideas when sort of value-bearing blockchain technology came out in an open source way? Like what were the ideas of how this could actually fund people? Yeah, I've, I've been calling it the design space of open source meets blockchain. And I think that uh, there's there's abstract reasons why this time it's different in open source meets blockchain, and there's more tangible reasons. The abstract reasons are, well, we value open source software, and we now have programmable money, and we can maybe program our values into our money, so maybe we can create a system that sustains open source. That's kind of like a professorial sort of version of of why it's different. The the real reason, like the tangible reason that it's different, is that we have uh, billions of dollars in market cap in these blockchain ecosystems that are all competing against each other. And in order to improve their protocols, they need to recruit developers to work on their protocols. And so you have billions of dollars that's floating around looking for developers. And all of the money that would have gone to some closed source, uh, to some back office on Wall Street in the closed source financial ecosystem is now going to open source software. So it just creates this 
very culturally different uh, deployment of capital in in the blockchain ecosystem than would have existed elsewhere. And and the real game changer, I think, for open source is that there's actually funding that is 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 looking for developers and there's an imbalance of too much funding and not enough software developers that can work on this technology. And it just creates this, this sea change in, in, in leverage for, for software developers to work on what they want and to work on stuff that they're, that they're passionate about. And so we're, we're at Gitcoin trying to build the rails of, of how that capital is going to be deployed. And to actually answer your question, Anna, uh, we started off with bounties, which is a very simple, uh, hey, I have a feature or a bug that I want turned around and I'll give two ETH for it, which is about $350 at time of recording. And um, we've seen that the hourly rates on Gitcoin are between $20 and $60 per hour. So, um, you know, if you're someone who has capital to deploy and you're looking to, to recruit a software developer, putting a bounty up on Gitcoin is a great way to do it. I think that uh, the Ethereum Foundation has done a really great job of giving out grants to people who are doing good stuff in the ecosystem. And that's another way to to deploy capital to to the ecosystem to give out. I think that their grants range from 25K all the way up to like $5 million, depending on how core whatever you're doing in the is in the ecosystem is. And I think that it, I think that that's a really interesting trend that we've seen. And I hope that they'll hope they'll speed it up and I hope that they'll continue deploying capital. But like grants are not new. Grants also would have existed before in all sorts of places. And I know that even in the open source community, I believe that like you could get from what I I think in our interview with Liz, we talked a little bit about this, Mm -hmm. like the government could give out grants Mm -hmm. for certain kinds of development projects. Mm -hmm. Um, The trouble with grants, and I think we all are aware of it, is that they tend to be one offs. Mm With milestones, but no sense of continual yeah. funding, and so it's like cool. You build the yeah. the castle or whatever, but then you know who keeps who takes care of it. All of those problems kind of come up again. Grants have existed in the old ecosystem. I think that what's different in the blockchain space is that there's too much capital chasing too few developers in the blockchain ecosystem. So grants that the Ethereum Foundation are doing, I, I think that that's a they've deployed something like fifteen million dollars into the space. And I think that that's a a really good thing. Um, I would like to see them move to a more recurring model. I'm actually on the working group for EIP 1337, which is a subscription standard on the blockchain. And so basically you sign a transaction once and then you can debit a certain amount of DAI or any token from a wallet every month. So sign once and then you can can cancel the subscription using the standard also. So I would love to see the Ethereum Foundation move towards monthly stipends for software developers as opposed to one-time capital deployments. And that's certainly a tool that we have available to us as well. Do you think that because, like, do you think that a lot of the ideas around this, though, are kind of based on the idea that the tokens will continue to go up in value? You know, you have this this almost mythology now of, like, the early miners, the early developers, like, getting in early, building the stuff up, mm-hmm. and now, you know definitely reaping the benefits of it yeah. when you when we talk about a lot of that stuff like you're assuming especially if you're paying in the token that this would continue to be value bearing and continue to go up mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think that it's certainly a double-edged sword uh when the bull market was happening i remember people were really happy to work on bounties that were one eth and they're worth twice as much in fiat currency by the time it was paid out but it doesn't work <laughs> the sentiment is exactly the opposite in a, <laughs> in a bear market and i think that stable coins are a really good innovation in they're going to be a really important innovation because uh, you don't have to rely on any speculation. You can just 
kind of focus on creating value and the the value will that you're paid will be will be stable so i think the erc20 is a standard that wraps a lot of different value capture models into it and that can be a stable coin or it can be a highly speculative asset but we've seen we've seen a, a real shift towards die as the market has been super volatile so i mean yeah grants are good but kind of one-off have their own problems uh, i think bounties have their problems in like how they're distributed getting people interested there's a bunch of other questions about like what should how much should a bounty be and and you know what's the onboarding process for starting to work for bounties etc like how do we solve this and what are the goals first and foremost like are the goals to get value capture for the open source project so Mm -hmm. let's say my my project creates a million dollar in values in 10 different companies should i have a percentage of that value or should i be paid yeah. for my time or like w- what are the goals that we're trying to achieve yeah i think it's it's good to start with uh goal setting early in the conversation because we sort of defined this design space of open source and blockchain and what are the goals of of funding public goods or funding software development inside of that design space i think that for the ethereum community which is you know if that's the community that I, I would consider myself the, to be a part of. And I think that the goal is to bring developers in the space and keep them in the space. And even better if they're working on public goods instead of some shitcoin. Forgive my language. Um, and and so, you know, for the Ethereum community, I think that developers are a leading indicator of a protocol that's maturing and an ecosystem that's going to actually hit the mainstream or let's call it at least the late majority or the I'm not sure exactly where we are on the, on the, on the Gartner curve, but let's call it the late majority. We want to bring more people into the space. We want more people to hold ETH and, uh, and you interact with things in the ecosystem. And the way that you do that is by improving the base layer layer protocol, improving the infrastructure, and then building an application layer on top of it that allows people to experiment with the internet of money to find the breakout application and um and so i think that the goal from the ethereum foundation's perspective i I don't work it for the ethereum foundation so i don't really speak for them but for the ethereum community is to bring more developers in and to keep them self-sufficient and working on the ethereum protocol now from the developer's perspective i think the goal is to work on something that compensates well that has a positive impact on the world or on your own network and then um, something that aligns with your values. And, and so I think that uh, there's a couple different actors in the ecosystem. There's people who are looking out for the value of the protocol, and they should want to recruit and maintain developers into their protocol. And for the developers, I think that you want to work on things that are fulfilling to you intrinsically, and you want to be able to pay your mortgage and, and be able to put food on the table for your family. And so I think that those are the goals that I I think about when I think about funding funding public goods and the and to your point about about equity and, and and upside I think the more that we can align incentives between the actors the better so you know you're going to get a certain portion of your salary that's liquidatable and you're going to use to pay your mortgage in fiat currency and it's also great if you get a little bit of equity or I, I'm using equity in the sort of broadest sense possible. If you're getting mm-hmm. a token that allows you to capture the upside in in a protocol, I think that's a positive thing also because it aligns the incentives of the actors. I used to work in music a really long time ago. And 
there were grants in music too. And I, I'm from Canada and there was like music grants and there was what you, what you'd often see though, is you'd see people make a trade off. Like I'm going to do what I love with high risk, mm. good chance I will not see, get, have any reward and like nothing in the future, or I will take a safe route and have like a side job. Yeah. And I think when it came to, I guess maybe the same thing has always been true in open source, but here what you're actually providing is that leveling idea where you could be a maybe part-time or even full-time open source person and still be able to have a decent life. You may not have the home run life, like you may not be the rock star, but you're, it's almost like there's a safety net of some sort or there's something like you you can fall back on <laughs> random metaphor. No, I mean, I think it's a good metaphor. And the way I would restate what you said is that um, there's almost an arbitrage between working on stuff that you're, that you're passionate about and stuff, something that compensates well. So there's like, you have to make exactly. a choice, right? And what Gitcoin's trying to do is close the spread in that arbitrage market between doing stuff that you care about and doing stuff that compensates well so that the majority of developers in the space can can do both of those things. And the reason why we're enabled to do that is that there's actually too much money chasing too few developers. And I don't know if those conditions will continue forever, probably not. But at least for right now, there's there's a lot of people who are able to work on on, on something they're passionate about that has an impact that compensates well. And and I think that that's good for all, all actors in the ecosystem. That's uh, in itself, like you said, is a double-edged sword. I'm curious on how you think of like Gitcoin like if you're trying to address just blockchain projects and protocol development or, or open so- source software in general, mm-hmm. in, in protocol development, what I've seen happen a lot and like why, you know, I, I've stated this publicly before, I, I believe there are about 10 people who completely understand the Ethereum protocol. That's it. There are 10 developers in the world who are ma- like maintaining Ethereum. Mm-hmm. That's not much for a network worth many billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem is that it's so much easier to make a significant like millions of dollars by having an ICO mm-hmm. than it is to go to protocol development where you might be able to get a salary. Like there, there's that problem of like there's a lot of people who are willing to put money towards something that they can get an exponential return on, mm-hmm. uh, but not into protocol development where, you know, because the only return that they could possibly get is ethereum going up in value which yeah you know is is much more uncertain yeah i mean i think that uh you know we'll we'll see if the ico markets bounce back i think what you said frederick about it's easier to make more money doing icos than protocol development was certainly true in 2017 i don't know if that market those market market conditions will will come back but i think that i i think that you're absolutely right you hit the nail on the head when you said there's probably 10 or a dozen people who completely understand the Ethereum protocol. And there's a truck factor. I mean, or I guess we call it a lottery factor now. Or if those people win the lottery, then are they still going to work on the Ethereum protocol? And and I think the more that you can create a crypto economic incentive or like an economic incentive for more people to first become contributors to Ethereum. And then once you become a contributor, you can be a more active contributor and then you become a maintainer. You got to create that, 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 that flow of developers that are going towards becoming protocol developers. And I think that uh, there's, I think that actually there's some actual numbers I can put to this right now. So ETH1X was just parity and Geth 
uh, working on on Ethereum one. And I think now Pegasus, which is funded by Consensus, is now starting to mine a few blocks in Ethereum one. But if you look at Ethereum two, there's there's something like eight or nine different clients that are bidding to be the parity and geth of Ethereum two. And I think that that's a really promising sign to see that many people who are building the next generation of a of Ethereum. It makes me feel like there is there is a business model around doing protocol development in um, in Ethereum, and I and I hope that those teams those teams see it out to Ethereum two actually launching next year or the following year because that would the more different clients that you have, then the less there's that truck factor or that lottery factor in development. I think that's true, but I guess like even going to that idea of like so the eight nine teams building these clients. Mm-hmm. Do you think what will happen is like those that can get can find ways to continue to fund themselves become those that remain? Because I think going back to that question of funding, whether there's a lot of people who understand it or not, it's like how do you fund these people? Yeah, like neither Parity or Gith are actually funded in in a business model sense like it's not a profitable venture parody lives off of grants gith does does too um so in the end it's sort of like it's the ethereum foundation paying for all of it Mm -hmm. and that's the same case for these eight or nine teams working on eth2 um i'm curious of like will, will there be a sustainable funding model either through like block rewards or through community funding through things like gitcoin or otherwise yeah, it'll be curious to see. Let's talk about Gitcoin because we have mentioned it a couple times, but I don't know if we've truly gone into like what you are doing. And then maybe we can come back to this question of like how to fund those future clients because I feel like, sure. at least from what I've seen, there are some clients who've put themselves up uh, like acting, right? I yeah. think so. Yeah, for sure. Like Yeath, one of them. Yeah. So, okay. So let's talk a little bit about Gitcoin. Okay. Yeah. Maybe to kick off though, tell us, like, we're curious a little bit about the inception of Gitcoin. Sure. So like you mentioned a little bit about your background, but where, like, where did you decide this was the thing you were going to work on? Yeah. So I'm a software engineer. And uh, if you go to my GitHub, you'll see a elephant graveyard of different projects that I've worked on from, I think in 2015, I built an AI a machine learning crypto trading bot. This is when ETH was at like 80 cents. And uh, I open sourced it and like tried to build an open source distributed hedge fund. Uh, that didn't work. Uh, I built this plugin called Adblock to Bitcoin, which basically took Adblock to AdSpace and allowed put QR codes that would allow Bitcoin donations in it. And like it got covered by Wired Magazine, but then like three people ever used it and publishers didn't want to put Bitcoin ads on their site. So I gave up on yeah. that. And and basically I was just experimenting with a lot of different things at the intersection of of blockchain and and uh, and trying to build a company. And none of them worked until until I, I, I tried Gitcoin. And uh, I think that I just by prospecting, by building a lot of stuff, by trying things and throwing them away, discovered that there's this deep need for open source sustainability and we could challenge the orthodoxy that open source is not valuable and that blockchain would be a would be a sea change for that. And so uh, tangibly what I did was I built Gitcoin, the at least the the initial bounties product in my basement and I hustled, hustled, hustled to get an intro to Joe Lubin. 
and I he offered to to fund Gitcoin, and so that was really uh, an inflection point for Gitcoin because before that it was just me and my friends using Gitcoin, and then once I was funded by Joe, then I could reach out to my like Ether Delta and my my crypto and MetaMask and Truffle and have them use Gitcoin. So there's just sort of like a social proof associated with who's using the product. And I think without Joe and consensus believing in me, Gitcoin would not exist today. So that's that's how we got off the ground. Cool. And Gitcoin was at first just bounties then. Mm-hmm. Yep. But more recently you have kudos and you have grants. When did those, and maybe you have something else actually, I'm not sure if we can talk about that after, but wh- how did they get started? Like when did those first roll out and what, like the, did they need some sort of implement, like was there an EIP that needed to pass for that to work? Is that sort of why? Yeah, all good questions. We have lots of uh, <laughs> we have lots of rods in the water, but yeah, I mean, it's we have a culture of experimentation, and luckily, we have access to a lot of software developers. Like we built a lot of these products with bounties, which allows us to innovate innovate pretty fast. But um, so yeah, if you think about the open source contributor lifecycle, your ninety nine percent of people are users of open source software. Let's call it one percent are contributors to open source software, and then 0.1 percent are maintainers of open source software. And so uh, bounties are are great for for making more people contributors to open source software, but it doesn't really work for maintainers because if you're a maintainer, you want stable income and it's more about that long persistent income. And so it was sort of this insight that bounties were just a limited way to engage the market that caused us to build a few different products that we think better usher people along that that open source contributor lifecycle. So uh, instead of 99% of people being users of open source, we think it'd be great if 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 we could create, I don't know, 10% of those people becoming contributors to open source. And we provide an incentive uh, to move along that, that, that lifecycle. And that's what our product suite is meant to do. So Gitcoin Grants is, I think, the one that I'll, that I'll start talking about. So Gitcoin Grants is a decentralized crowdfunding platform that you can use to fund your work in open source software. It's built off of EIP 1337, which is the subscription standard for for Ethereum. And so basically the way that works is that if you if you want to fund your project on Gitcoin Grants, you can con- contribute 10 die or 100 die every month or every week on a recurring basis and the recurring nature of those payments allows people to build a a groundswell of funding that hopefully they'll be able to quit their job and just work on open source software because they they are funded by the internet. And uh, and so our, our KPI is how many lives can we change by providing recurring funding through 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 Gitcoin grants. And so uh, Gitcoin grants is is aimed at maintainers, whereas bounties I think is aimed at contributors, and so they complement each other super super nicely. But uh, I think we've done Gitcoin Grants launched in January of 2019. And since then, we've done almost 200K in in value transfer. So we're not at the point where people can really quit their jobs yet and just work for Gitcoin Grants. But the slope is up and to the right. And I would be tickled pink if if this summer we had someone who quit their job and was just working on their project full time because we were able to facilitate funding for them. So actually, this podcast, Zero Knowledge, has a grant out. I think we've mentioned it before on the podcast. Uh, we'll, put the no- we'll put the link in the show notes if anyone wants to check it out. Back to the question of what your focus is. Like, do you distinguish between general open source software, protocol development, Ethereum stuff? You know, are you focusing on Ethereum stuff now as a 
you know, getting started thing and then hoping to expand? Like, where's your mind with that? Yeah. So our stated mission, what rallies the network together is the mission of growing and sustaining open source. So there's nothing about Ethereum or blockchain in that mission. I think that uh, Ethereum and blockchain is a really great place to start to have a beachhead for funding open source software. And I think that uh, if and when we beat the the boss of of funding open source public goods, we'll move on to the final boss, which is funding the broader open source ecosystem. Uh, I, I think that we view blockchain as a useful place to start, but if we can get, get enough momentum, we'd love to roll into funding the wider open source community. We talked a little bit about the grants, but I also know that there's something called kudos. And I, I, I'm guessing this is like after the fact saying like, cool, I like what you're doing. Is this like donations kind of? Uh, no, not really. Uh, kudos are basically giving a high five to someone over the internet. And, and the insight was that if you and I were working together in the same office and we just shipped a major milestone, we might go out to lunch or, or coffee or something and just say like, yeah, we really did this. This is great. And, and Gitcoin is sort of, we're trying to build this substrate for software development to happen in the 21st century. Uh, around the orthodoxy of remote work. And I just really miss the the sort of like intrinsic kinship that I feel with my coworkers when um a I, you're just paying them you're paying them eth to work to work for you or with you. Um and b it's across the internet. And so kudos basically takes ERC721 the non-fungible token standard on Ethereum and allows you to show appreciation for another network member with a beautiful piece of artwork that represents something really great about them. So, uh, you know, I, I, I could send y'all a kudos for asking great questions after this, and you could display it on your Gitcoin profile to signal to other members of the network that you ask great questions and therefore they should work with you if they want to work with someone who asks great questions. And also uh, it bootstraps reputation on the platform. So uh, it was just sort of an interesting augment to bounties and to grants to, and, and also an excuse to play with the ERC721, which is, I mean, I think CryptoKitties kind of blew up that standard and we just wanted to make a play there. And um, But I'm really excited. We sort of stumbled onto emergent reputation on Web3. And and I'm super passionate about giving people control of their data in, in a self-sovereign way. I think the number is that LinkedIn makes $30 per year off of just having your your resume hosted on LinkedIn, mm. and and there's no reason that you shouldn't self sovereign own your your professional resume and uh, be able to carry it from site to site. And so, kudos is sort of we think it might go in that direction, but for now, it's just a fun shiny object that you can that you can send to another contributor. Building Gitcoin, what are some of the challenges, both like from a business perspective, getting people involved, but I'm also super curious to hear technically what's it like building this platform, which is more or less a dApp on top of Ethereum. Yeah, it's it's fun and and interesting. I I'm super bullish on Ethereum, and I think that DeFi is really exciting. But I think that it it follows that if you're if you're working on the new protocol for money then there's going to be lots of things that are going to be built off of that and not just speculative app, uh, app, apps. I think that self-sovereign jobs and and uh, 21st century jobs is an area that I'm increasingly passionate about. And I hope that those are built on top of Ethereum because 
Gitcoin, Gitcoin gives you access to Western flows of capital if you live in India or if you're a refugee. And I, I think that uh, getting access to, to a global labor market is, is, poss- is probably really important to, to many parts of the world where they don't have a lot of local opportunity. But uh, to tangibly answer your question, Gitcoin is built using Gitcoin. So we dog food is, is sort of like rule number one in, in building all of our different products. So everything that you see is built using Gitcoin bounties or, or Gitcoin grants across the platform. So I think that we're super lucky to not only be a core team of 10 people, but to have a community of 20,000 developers that are rallying around us to help us build our software. And it allows us to iterate a lot faster than I think we would if we didn't build the bounties product first. Now, that's not without its challenges because people come from all over the world and there's a language barrier and sometimes they're in a completely different time zone as you. Sometimes they don't read your documentation uh, and and so there can be bugs introduced or a lot of back and forth on, on code review. So that's been sort of a challenge and we've been maturing our documentation and our onboarding flows in order to in order to to deal with that um i think the other the other the other thing that i'll mention since you asked me what the challenges of building gitcoin have been is is non-technical and it's it's around business models so it's sort of meta to be talking about how we fund open source software and to not mention that gitcoin itself is on consensus's payroll and we're sort of on the benevolent billionaire uh model of of funding open source software and so we've been trying to build a business around gitcoin that can be self-sustainable and that's not without its challenges also because we we never launched an ico we didn't we didn't build a gitcoin token there still is no gitcoin token and and so how are we going to sustain our team of 10 or 12 software engineers all all of which who are senior software engineers and make market rate salaries so we've been experimenting with adding a fee to the platform, adding managed services on top of the platform. Um, we have another product that we probably don't have time to go into right now that has a built-in business model, and that's been growing a lot. So I, I think that just covering our burn is sort of the challenge. That's the, that's the next big boss that we're fighting right now. And, uh, and so the conversations that I'm involved in around business models for open source are for the good of the community, but they're also for the good of Gitcoin. And we're sort of an interesting test case of a DAP that's trying to monetize and pay our dev team salaries without doing an ICO. And uh, I think that that's, it'd, be, it'd be pretty dope if we were one of the first companies that was able to do that. So uh, I'm hopeful and you can expect from me that we'll be transparent and open source about our results and what we learned from doing that because we think that we're the canary in the coal mine for a lot of the ecosystem. That's cool. I, I'm curious because um, we used uh, Gitcoin bounties at Parity Ethereum mm-hmm. for the Parity Ethereum project for a while, but we kind of stopped because we found the like our onboarding was not good enough. We didn't have the capacity in-house to do the mentoring necessary to bring people in. A lot of flyby contributions. So like you would spend two weeks mentoring someone and getting them into the code base, get one small bug fix and then they'd be gone. And you'd like, <laughs> it was, you know, 10 times more work than fixing the actual bug itself. Yeah. And that's a problem like with our, with our code base, with our documentation, with our processes. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you, you faced similar things initially. How do you fix that? How do you make the onboarding good enough that any random person can walk by and, and be productive? Yeah, I mean, I think it sort of depends on 
you know, treating you as the customer, parity Ethereum as the customer, I I think it sort of depends on what your end game is. I mean, if you just want to get a a jolt to your to your software development, then then you know, maybe it's not a fit. But if there's externalities like you're looking to hire and try before you buy hiring is is one way that you want to do it, then I think that that's a different scenario. If you want to engage a wider community of developers and have them rally around your project, then you know, you're not going to do that by just fixing that bug yourself. But the actual tangible answer to your question is that we're thinking about this could be two birds, one stone, fix this problem and fix our business model problem at the same time. So, you know, what if we could engage you for, I don't know, let's call it $30,000 worth of bounties and have some sort of managed bounty component on top of that, where we have someone on our team who will write the documentation for you, who will interview your team and get it all down so that contributors know what to do, uh, who can recommend next steps to you and sort of manage both sides of the market, then I think that that could provide a lot of value. And it sort of speaks to how abstract software development is, right? If you're building a marketplace for taxi cabs, then basically if some taxi cab driver takes you from A to B and they're not a creep and they do it quickly and safely, you're going to give them five stars. But with software development, I can think that we're going to build a treehouse. You might think that we're building, uh, I don't know, a scooter because it's so abstract and engineers aren't really good communicators. And so it's easy to talk past each other. So adding a human layer that's able to sort of manage that I think is maybe something you'll see from us in the next six to nine months. Interesting. I mean, it's interesting. Like it, the goal for Parity Ethereum is to onboard more contributors, like long-term contributors, so that eventually Parity, the company, doesn't need to exist for mm. Parity Ethereum, the code base, to thrive. Yeah. But part of that is obviously like if Parity, the company, keeps paying for bounties forever, mm-hmm. then that's also not like we're not making any money off it, so we can't give away money indefinitely. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how we solve the problem of parity the company going away and, you know, people still maintaining the the code base. I think that uh, that's that's sort of like next level of legacy, I think, if people are still working on, you know, that's like Satoshi Nakamoto level of, of project <laughs> management right there. But yeah. uh, we're, we're sort of discovering the the space and... and trying to create the the best practices as we move along because it's such a new emergent space. And um, I don't know, I, after this call, I'll probably follow up and try to sell you managed bounties or something like that <laughs> so that we can solve my problem along with your problem. But uh, it's an interesting, it's an interesting design space. And I, I feel super lucky to be working on a project with other software engineers because uh, that's my tribe and it's, it's good to, to, to help each other. Let's talk about a, another model that has been sort of proposed or actually exists in another blockchain. That's the idea of founder rewards or a portion of actually mining rewards being given, at, put in a pool and then distributed out. In the case of Zcash, they call it founder rewards, I think. And that's um, something that was built into the protocol from the beginning. So they had this built-in pool of funds that could be distributed out to the fund to, to the founders. And that was then distributed out, as I understand it, to employees. And so that's actually paying for client development at the electric coin company. And it's really, it's really interesting. It might be unique. I don't know. Maybe you know some other blockchains that are doing something like that. The reason I want to bring it up is I know that recently there was a proposal to do something similar in the Ethereum community. And I think you were calling it block rewards, right? I, so I didn't, I didn't follow much of it. Um, I heard it got heated. 
And I wondered what you thought about it. Because you, you've been in that conversation, right? Yeah, I actually I actually submitted EIP 1789. So I'm, I'm like patient zero for block reward funding. Uh, cool. But yeah, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, block reward funding is basically a proposal to every, every block in Ethereum, you have miners that are doing work in order to secure the network. And that, that work is verifiable and provable. And we pay miners two ETH per block, I think is the exact amount as of May 2019. And and that's their reward for securing the network for making sure that there's no double spends and uh, and other security features of the Ethereum network. And so the idea behind block reward funding is what if instead of just paying the miners for securing the network, we also pay developers who are building the software that the miners run to secure the network. And so let's call it point two ETH. Uh, so miners make two ETH and let's say developers make two ETH or point two ETH then you could basically fund Ethereum's development, both ETH1X and ETH2X consistently, uh, continuously. You know, we talked about the problems with, with grants being a one-time contribution. Uh, you would have enough funding that you could, that you could bring to, to ETH1X and ETH2 where they don't have to rely on grants. They just have a steady stream of funding. And so I submitted EIP 1789, which is basically a proposal to create stable funding for open source maintainers. And I sort of layered into that ERC um, three different arguments. So the first argument was, and they were designed to be in, in a gradient of controversy, controversial level. Um, the, the first is that uh, funding or ETH1X and ETH2 is important. So that's argument number one. Um, and then the second argument is donations are not working and what we're trying right now is not working. And then the third argument is let's do block reward funding. Block reward funding is the right model and this is what a block reward funding could could uh, could um, could look like. And and so I, I knew the EIP was going to be controversial and that's why I layered that gradient of controversialness into it because my hope was that at 99.9% of us would agree, yes, ETH1.X is is important. And then we would just kind of like come to blows around whether block rewards are the right model and what would be the the specifications of block rewards if if we did do it. And I think it, it sort of worked. Um, it created a lot of divisive chatter in the community about how to do it and when to do it. And I think that like three days after I after I uh, after I submitted EIP seventeen eighty nine, Vitalik sent out a tweet about how you know what if we what if instead of doing block rewards funding, we just put a as a community agree to have a standard that every transaction on the network has an extra one gig away fee that will go to either the wallet that sent the transaction or the client that developed the software that the miner is using to confirm the transaction. And we could fund $2 million per year of open source software just using this community standard. And so uh, the idea was to just sort of create this conversation. What's going on right now is not working. And hopefully the community would would come back with a lot of different ideas about how to fund open source software and and I think to that extent, it was a success. Like we stirred the pot and created the conversation. But I don't think that you'll see block rewards on the Ethereum blockchain in the Istanbul hard fork because that specific proposal has been too controversial to make it past the the yardstick of we need to have consensus around this EIP in order to get it into the uh, into the the hard fork. So uh, there's sort of a swirling 
uh, a swirling tornado of ideas and controversy around this idea, but it's a good way to stimulate conversation, I think. I I think uh, I actually talked to Zuko over Twitter as well, like a year ago, about you know Zcash had this from the start, and they avoided all of the controversy by having it there from the start. Like this is what you buy into if you buy into Zcash, you buy into the electric coin company getting this much money every block, and um, so there can't really be like you can't complain about Zcash having this. It's been there from day one. And I asked him, like, do you think a blockchain that hasn't had it can introduce it? And he was, of course, of course he can. I'm of the complete opposite opinion. Uh. I think if you haven't had it from day one, there's no way it's getting in. It's just too, there's, it's a governance problem and it will never be like governance problems will never be resolved. So it's sort of like, yeah, who gets the money? Like it goes down a very deep rabbit hole. I actually heard that recently maybe he's changed his tune as well after seeing what what went went on with the block reward idea because I I heard he recently like in the last month or two went on stage and said something similar which is like it would be unlikely to be able to be put in after the fact. So I I saw him at Radical Exchange which is like Glenn Wiles conference and uh, he was up on on stage and I went up and I kind of like very meekly said hey Zuko I heard that, that Zcash has a block reward funding and like what would you say to hypothetically someone who maybe hypothetically wanted to do it on an, on another blockchain? And he's like, oh, hey, Kevin, I saw your proposal. This is what I think you should do. And um, and he was like, yeah, we just avoided all the controversy. And there's still this corner of the internet that is full of conspiracy theories and thinks that I'm like swindling the funds or whatever, which is not true. And um, I don't know how you convince a community to, to do it. We just put it in from the start. And even then people forked away and created Z Classic and without the founder's reward. And, and I don't know how you do it without, without doing it from the start. But um, Vitalik actually has a post called On Collusion, which he published a few weeks ago. And there's this quote from it that I really, really love. Um, he says that there's, there's, quote, an impossible trade-off between either failing to incentivize legitimate public goods or over-subsidizing plutocracy. So the problem is that uh, miners, you can verify their work and that they're doing good for the network. But since software development is inherently abstract, and since I told you that I wanted a swing set and you built me a tractor, then like we don't actually know if you provided value for the network. And so in that wiggle room of not being able to verify the work that software developers do, there there's a lot of worry about subsidizing a plutocracy at layer one of our blockchain and what would that do to the value of ethereum if we did that so i think Mm -hmm. that you're right it's an incredibly deep rabbit hole frederick and and i don't think i completely appreciated that when i created the the conversation with eip 1789 but we're taking it very seriously right now and i think that you can expect that if there's another eip that opens up the pandora's box around block reward funding again then it's going to take that design challenge very 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 seriously this is a topic that I've thought a lot about. I mean, you know, working on Parity Ethereum, we struggle with this problem every day of like, how do we get money? We, we're building software. It's used by majority of miners. And, you know, how can we make this work, obviously? Uh, and I actually see like, I think grants are great, but unsustainable. Bounties are great, but for like smaller tasks and and in particular, like the scenarios that I was that I was talking about where someone comes with like a feature suggestion and like, I really want this for my DAP or for whatever. Uh, But as a sort of sustainable core level thing, I think the only thing that really works is either block rewards, but I kind of rule that out 
just mm. <laughs> because I don't think it's going to happen. But this, I think the second best thing is to build in kind of what Vitalik was talking about. Vitalik's specific proposal, I don't think works just because of the dynamics of nodes distributed in the network and wallets and things. But I do see a couple of models that could work. Like um, if you're writing a node for miners, you could ha- you could just say that I will take part por- a portion of your block rewards. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the portion is small enough, the miner probably doesn't notice. Like like mm-hmm. you said, the the ro- if the reward is two ETH, I think point two ETH is way too much. But point zero two ETH might be enough um, that they'd be willing to give it away. And someone like Parity can can completely sustain themselves on, I think, even like 0.1% or 0.5% of the um, block rewards and uh, of like the blocks mined with the Parity software. Um, so I think that that's a, an interesting model. But there's there's actually several other layers as well. Like we don't have an incentive model around full nodes. Um, we don't have an incentive model around light clients. If you combine those together and say, like, I open a payment channel with a full node and pay per data I request with the light clients, then suddenly, you know, full nodes are being paid and uh, the health of the network goes up. Um, You could also replace entire systems like Infura with semi-centralized instead of completely centralized solutions where you pay microtransactions to, to interact with it. So I think there's a lot of like extra protocol design space that's really interesting for kind of micro fees on things. I think what you're pointing to as well is like right now, so far throughout this entire episode, we only talked about like software development, but there are other actors in the space that are kind of working altruistically to maintain nodes or what have you. And those are the groups that eventually we'll also have to find those business models or find some reason to keep doing it. Personally, I believe Ethereum as an experiment will fail if like clients aren't incentivized Mm -hmm. Uh, because, you know, it just doesn't work without people being able to reliably use like clients. I just think that this design space is so interesting because now we have programmable money and and we can program our values into our money. It kind of comes back to that. We can... I, I hope that we find a sustainable model and and I think the stakes are super high because you know the the sustainability of Ethereum itself and blockchain ecosystems over the decade long time horizon probably depends on on these questions and what comes out of this design space and grants are only going to carry us for so long. Do you think I mean in the future as as you're watching these other blockchains being developed and like they're still in research phase they haven't actually gone live like have you been speaking with those groups mm-hmm. I'm speaking specifically of like ETH 2.0 or some of the projects that haven't launched yet have you spoken to them about trying to get something like that in right off the bat Yeah um like is that something that you're thinking about nowadays Yeah um uh, it uh, some I mean there's so many blockchains out there and it's hard to to even follow Ethereum because there's so much happening. But it, uh, one 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 project that I'm really excited about that I want to talk about is is OS OS Coin, which stands for Open Source Coin. And um, basically, the way that works is that they've got this algorithm called OS Rank that they're going to use to figure out what are the most important projects in open source and to do block reward funding directly to them without having to do a governance layer on top of it. And the way OS rank works is that 
they use a modified version of PageRank to figure out which projects are important. So PageRank, as you know, uh, takes a look at the web and uses links as metadata to figure out which sites are more influential than others because of the linking structure of, of the web. And so OSRank does the same thing with dependencies and references and open source projects to each other. So you can basically game out using that the OS rank algorithm, which are the most important and influential projects in open source. And as I understand it, uh, LA and Alexis, if you're listening to this, I don't want to mis- misrepresent your project, but they would they would algorithmically figure out which projects are the most important with OS rank and airdrop rewards to them using something called OS coin. And so I think that that's a really interesting model. And I'm hoping that they're that they're really successful because it could be depending on how the network values or the market values their network, it could be millions of dollars supporting open source software. And so that's just one small example of, of what can be created in this design space around programmable money. Yeah, we actually, we, we've had them on the show. We had them on the show, like, I think almost a year ago. So I think it's great that you mentioned the project again. You might've even like updated us a little bit on what they're working on. But yeah, I guess in that case, like what, what you just described, that is a group that is actually, they've built it in to their protocol that there's this ability to fund. Yeah, I mean, it's the entire purpose of the protocol, which I think is cool. To me, it feels like more projects that I talk to, they fall into one of two categories. They're trying to build a Bitcoin-like system where it's published and then it's done. Like we're Mm -hmm. not changing anything anymore after it's published. Mm -hmm. Or uh, they take the view of like, this is a living protocol it needs development, and therefore they're thinking of some way of, of funding it, either through fees or or uh, lock wards or some other structure. But I think uh, there is there is I, I should say there is one plausible shot we have of getting block rewards into Ethereum, and that is if it's built into Ethereum two from scratch. I think that's the one way we can get it in. Uh, I'm, I'm even loath to talk about that right now because I know some conspiracy theorist is going to like see this and then at me on Twitter and be like, you guys are-. Uh, are you doing okay after the block reward yeah, conversation? No, Did I mean, it- I'm, do- I'm doing well. Um, I have a, I have less of a faith. So there's a signaling problem in the Ethereum community where we, the, the standard for getting an EIP into, into, uh, a, the, into a hard fork is that there needs to be consensus. But does that mean a majority consensus? Does that mean a supermajority? Does that mean 99% consensus? And totally. even then, we don't even have a signaling mechanism to, like, you can put a poll on Twitter or on Reddit, but is that representative of the community? And even if you try to do an on-chain uh, governance poll, then they're going to get, like, 2% participation. And do they have consent of the governed? And um, and so it just opens up this 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 abstract debate space where you're not able to achieve consensus together because there's no signaling mechanism. And, and I was kind of tug in cheek saying that like a lot of conspiracy theorists have come at me in the, on Twitter the last few weeks and been like, you're trying to ruin Ethereum and you're trying to like capture the funding for yourself. And I don't think any of those things are true, but there's no way for us as a community to, to get past those conversations. And so, you know, I think the Ethereum two thing is an interesting idea, Frederick, to your, to your point. Um, I, I think it'd be interesting to create a fork of Ethereum. And this is just me spitballing. Please don't take this super seriously, whoever's listening to this. But like, what if, you know how Litecoin is sort of a testnet market for uh, for Bitcoin? And, you know, our thoughts about Litecoin 
aside for a second, what if there was a fork of Ethereum that had like one one thousandth of the network value, but it had block rewards funding as a means of testing out that it can actually be done? And and what if the market decided that that network had value in the same way that they've decided that Litecoin has value? I think that that's that's sort of one of the ideas that the block reward funding group is is sort of teasing out right now. And and I think that that's actually a more plausible scenario than Ethereum 2.0 having block rewards funding uh, in it. But we don't have a signaling mechanism to know, so I guess you'll just have to take me on my word. Yeah. I mean, the, the interesting thing about Ethereum 2 is this whole governance aspect and who can do what or signaling or any, none of that has made it to Ethereum 2 yet. Like Ethereum 2 is designed by a handful of people unilaterally. Like there's no community input. There's nothing. So, you know, we're in a clean design space. We can do what we want kind of thing. That's true. Um, uh, And I do think that we have consensus as a community that we need more transaction throughput. We need more scalability in order to compete with the chains that just put more scalability but less decentralization at layer one. Um, so I think that we have consensus around that because it's just kind of a slam dunk case. I wonder if someone tried to to put um, something controversial like block rewards funding into ETH2, how we would create consensus around that decision and and whether it would sort of stick a, a stick in the spokes of, of Ethereum 2 if it happened. I do think that, you know, one of the most valid arguments I've seen against block rewards funding is that Ethereum did an ICO back in 2015 or 2014 and and you, we had consent to give inflation funding to the miners because it was included in the spec of the Ethereum ICO and you don't have consent of the governed to do block reward funding because that wasn't part of the original spec and so i think that that argument might still apply to Ethereum 2.0 but then again i think you have to you have to take your eth from Ethereum 1 and move it over to the Ethereum 2 chain uh, and so maybe there's some sort of like consent that you're doing as you change from ETH into into Beacon ETH in that scenario. But I don't know. Also, should... you're mo- you're you're moving away from miners to validators. And that's, so there's already a big shift. That's super interesting point, Anna. Because like a, a miner, if they're getting less of their block rewards, then they have less money to pay for their equipment and their electricity fees. But a staker has not a lot of electricity fees and operational costs to run a mining node. And because they're staking, they're incentivized to have a long time preference to see the value of ETH increase. And therefore, they should be aligned with having software development be really well funded in the Ethereum community. And so I think that there is sort of a sea change in the incentives of the actors of the network in this scenario. But I don't know if we can create a super majority of consensus in the community around that. But I think, like you say, it, I don't, you, know, you don't necessarily have to. Those who don't want to use ETH2 can stay on ETH1. ETH1, in my estimate, will continue to live forever. So, yeah. you know, ETH2 will be those who like the concept of ETH2 and what it does. So, yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, I think, yeah, it is, it is an interesting thing. Like, as we get closer to actually shipping anything on ETH2, the community will get more involved and will start looking at these things. I mean, that's the same thing before any hard fork. Like when when the EIPs are discussed and looked at and decided on, almost no one is involved. Uh, but then like two weeks before the hard fork, everyone goes through the list and is like, oh shit, I, I don't want this. Yeah, I didn't know Frog <laughs> Pal was in. Yeah. Uh, 
I have a, I have an idea. So you, I'm kind of going to switch a little bit, but like just before you mentioned this idea of signaling, mm-hmm. and I want to give, I want to just tell you the story of this project that I was involved with early on in its inception. I'm not super involved with it now, but it's called Tenograph. Maybe you know it. It's got mm-hmm. a Gitcoin grant. Yeah, James Hancock. Little right? shout out to ten. Yeah, little shout out to Tenograph. But I think that it's kind of the perfect. I use it often as like the perfect example for. It's it's such a common good. It comes up so often. So many people want it. There's a team that built it. They they built it with like a shoestring budget. They built it. They put it out there, and then they run into the same problem of funding. <laughs> And it's exactly what, like, kind of to circle back to what you're describing. It's like, I think what you guys are doing at Gitcoin is super important. I know that they have the grant, and that's super great. But I think you see that happening over and over again. You're like, we want to make changes to help fund the ecosystem. Cool. Mm. We don't know who wants what, where, in order to do it, so we need signals. Cool. And then you're like, how do you fund signals? Mm. You're kind of back to square one. Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, what I would do in that scenario, I think that there is bootstrapping funding around grants and um, annual consensus funds us and and hopefully that will provide enough lift off for a project like that to get off the ground. I'm also a big fan of Tenograph. I want to see them successful. I think that their product works, but we just need better marketing and we need consensus in the community to use Tenograph to create consensus, which is another one of those chicken and the egg type type things. Yeah. Kevin, do you have anything else that you want to share before we sign off? You mentioned this other project. Maybe you can't talk too much about it, but is it live? Oh, yeah, I can talk about it. So uh, CodeFund is another project in the Gitcoin umbrella. And basically the way it works is that it, uh, if you're an open source maintainer and you have a big audience, um, as many open source maintainers who are successful do, uh, it allows you to put ads on your GitHub repo or your web presence for the that platform and and basically it's an ethical advertising platform so we're challenging the orthodoxy that ads have to track you to the end of the earth in order to be profitable and the reason why that's important for software developers is that software maintainers are some of the most sophisticated actors on the internet and they typically don't want to sell out their audience to google or to facebook in order to fund their software development so we just provide them a non-obtrusive at uh, option to monetize their audience without selling them out. And CodeFund, we just did distributions yesterday and gave out, we're giving out like 25K per month to open source maintainers, which is makes my heart a little bit of flutter whenever we do that every month and um, are growing at a pretty rapid clip uh, because, so the, the first orthodoxy that we challenged was that advertisements can't be ethical. Um, the second orthodoxy is you shouldn't advertise let blockchain projects advertise. So like Google and Facebook kind of clamped down on advertising for blockchain projects. And we've been trying to fill that space for people who want to get their projects in front of, in front of people and allow them to advertise whatever they're doing on uh, in the blockchain space. And so those are the two orthodoxies that we've been challenging. And CodeFund's growing at a pretty rapid clip. It's like 20% per month right now. Knock on wood, hopefully it continues. But uh, if you want a a passive way to monetize your work in open source software, check out codefund.app. That's another project under the Gitcoin umbrella. And again, zooming out, it's just all about creating an incentive for users to become contributors of open source, to become maintainers of open source. Mm. It serves maintainers. I think it's a great vision. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and, you know, hopefully it's it's not just a vision that is like a poo-poo thing. Uh, hopefully it's something that will come to fruition and 
not only will employ uh, a lot of software developers in the space, but will increase the network value of, of Ethereum by, by doing that. Cool. Thanks, Kevin, for joining us for this conversation. It was very wide ranging. We covered a lot of funding questions. Um, yeah, thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, th thanks so much for having me. Uh, very quickly, I'd just like to say that round three of Gitcoin Grants is launching soon. So if you're looking for an excuse to contribute to the Zero Knowledge Podcast Grant or Tenograph or any of your other favorite projects, check us out at gitcoin.co slash grants. Very cool. To our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.